Criterion Cult Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Garcia. We also have Mondor Vizu here. And today we have a very special episode because we have a very special guest. You may know him as the singer of Touche Amore, Hesitation Wounds. He also runs Secret Voice Records, and he also created the first ever podcast. Jeremy Bohm, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, Welcome. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, so what we do... Yeah, what we do here is we uh, we usually like to get into a Criterion film, that a film that's already in the Criterion collection, and then we'll talk about a film that we believe belongs in the collection, sort of argue for it, and just talk about those two films. And usually they're pretty similar. In this case, we're doing a Coen Brothers double feature. Uh, what I really wanted to get into first before we start talking about the movies, uh, Jeremy, is asking, because I know you're into a lot of physical media stuff. You're always kind of showing off your records, and you have a really great record collection. Do you have that? Uh, the same with maybe Criterion uh, collections or even uh, any type of Blu-rays or special edition DVDs and stuff? Definitely, yes. I, I whenever, um, whenever Criterion does their sales, like those like hot, you know, like 24-hour sales or like when uh, Barnes & Noble has their month where they're all 50% off, I get into trouble, you know? I'm just like, oh yeah. I, I often find myself want, like having to ar- argue against myself being like, Yo, I know I like this movie, but do I need to own it? Like, how many times am I going to watch Bicycle Thieves? Like, it's <laughs> a beautiful film. It's a beautiful film. But it's also, like, a very heavy, sad film that I don't know if I'm going to come back to more than once every three or four years, if if that even. You know what I'm saying? So, like, I have no, to yeah. consider the rewatch value for owning something physical do you do you two feel that way as well yeah i think that constitutes as constitutes as a buy like yeah, every three <laughs> three or four years watch one one of those movies okay well, I, yeah yeah I mean, it, it, it's it's interesting yeah but then there's like oh i was just gonna say it it depends now because especially with now with the criterion channel i'm kind of able to be like well it's on the channel i don't need to get it right now uh but there are but there is stuff for instance like bicycle thieves where you're totally. just totally like, oh, yeah, that, that's a very sad movie, but damn, that packaging just looks so cool. I just want it on my shelf. I mean, that's what like I feel, especially if I don't think I'm... <laughs> that's, yes, that is the other thing, is that I feel like the people that uh, run Criterion, especially in these last, you know, t- uh, whatever, five years, have really taken into account the packaging where, like, now there's these cool inserts and, like, little posters inside or like i mean all the wes anderson ones always come with like a lot of fun kind of goodies inside which kind of which definitely appeals to the record collector nerd diy screen printed inserts and th- you know like it appeals to that side of me as well so like it, it's definitely it's an it's an expensive habit where i'm like ah you know i, I think last time uh the last sale that they had i ended up uh, like barnes and noble um i think i ended up getting like 15 movies or something like that over the course of the month i just kept like going to barnes and noble at least like twice a week being like well maybe they have something else restocked now and i'll just go look you know yeah no yeah and that's a perfect way to do it yeah this last well the one before the end of the year they kept on like just going on sale forever like on amazon and barnes and noble and then yeah uh and i'm in glendale and there's a barnes and noble just like up the street 
Yeah, and going actually into the Barnes and Noble is, is a lot better because you can it, it sort of lessens the choice that you have. As if you're just online, you're just scrolling forever, just adding things to your cart and then taking stuff out. So that's why I like going there. And then sometimes I'll go to Barnes and Noble and I'll see some guy sort of eyeing something that I didn't even really want, but I'm like, well, you know what? That's the only one there. I'm just gonna grab it because I don't know. It just it just feels <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so yeah, that, that, that yeah, guy design is me. <laughs> yeah. It's like you, you start to kind of convince yourself, like, well, maybe I do need that movie. You know, like I I, I mean that is do I, you know, the Yeah, that, it's, it's it's like yeah, this guy looks a, like a guy a who knows game, what he's talking but, about. Um, <laughs> right yeah and or there's been there's been times too where i'll i've bought a movie that i know i need to have under my belt that is like a movie that i just hadn't seen yet and i you know i'm I'm like well it's so beloved like i should not only should i do i need to see this film i should just own it and then you know i've 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 fallen victim to that once or twice as as well you know well, that's kind of a good... Is, is um, there anything that you bought that you kind of regretted buying? Yes, and it probably might start a fight uh, because <laughs> I think it's a... I, I do not... En- I did not enjoy it. And uh, so I don't want to start... Uh, I mean, I, I'm happy to start on maybe a contentious thing, but, you know, the, the Twin Peaks movie, I'm not in. I, I don't... I don't oh, I'm wow. not in. <laughs> but... <laughs> but are you usually a David I, Lynch I'm also person? like... A, I'm, a, I'm not really a... I, that's a great question. I, I am a passive fan. I, there are okay. movies of his that I enjoy and that there, and then there are some that I can't enjoy. I think this is like a, probably a weirder opinion, but like, I think the movie of his that I've enjoyed the most is the elephant man. Um, oh. It's the, okay. it's like the film of his that's like kind of the most straightforward and it has, it's like a beautiful story you know like no it's, yeah it, it but i i admit also there's still films of his that i haven't seen yet you know okay okay well <laughs> in terms of uh what you were saying um you know talking about going into you know seeing a film and being like oh this is a film i should own because i haven't had it under my belt was blood simple something like that for you was that something that you maybe had seen uh, early on in your kind of coen brothers i guess you know uh, watch or did it like you did you have to go back to that uh i had already seen it for sure like i became a big like i i went from being um you know a a casual just like a young fan of their movies without putting together that it was all them like i probably put together like oh these are my guys in the late late 90s i think it was maybe around the time oh brother or out though was coming out that i was like oh wait this these guys are geniuses because I already love Fargo. I love the big Lebowski. Um, and now I love this movie. And that's when I started really doing the research. And then I was like, Oh wait, these guys did raising Arizona. You know, I, at that point is when I was probably like 16, uh, 16, 17 or something like that, when it all kind of started to make sense to me. Um, and then I was like, okay, now I have to go back and do, do the real research. And that, and that's when I saw blood simple. That's when I saw Miller's crossing and Barton Fink um and then since then you know every time a movie had come out i was there opening night to see it you know yeah nice yeah but so blood simple is their first film came out in 1984 and that was um the cinematography was done by barry sonnenfeld uh which is um one of their first kind of collaborations that they had he went on to direct the adams family and stuff like that uh, the film stars john getz francis mcdormand dan hedaya m elmet walsh 
And um, basically, it's about the owner of a seedy small town, uh, small town Texas bar discovers that one of his employees is having an affair with his wife. A chaotic chain of misunderstandings, lies, and mischief ensues after he devises a plot to have them murdered. Which, um, you know, usually those kind of IMDb synopsises don't really give the story. But I think that's a pretty good uh, description of what this movie is, even though I think there's a lot more to it, obviously. But that, I think that pretty much sums it up. Yeah, it's it's giving you the 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 meat and potatoes of what the thing is it's it's like a it's a definite it's the most aside from maybe the man who wasn't there like the hardest the cones ever leaned into making a noir movie you know oh yeah aside yeah. from big especially... i guess which is like a comedy noir but like right but, but yeah this this is like a straight noir for sure Right, and then with the, well, with both of the films, they both feel like very much like horror films. I, I feel like um, Blood Simple, especially, it, it has a lot of jump scares. I feel like that's something that the Coen Brothers still sort of do, especially in No Country for Old Men, especially with more quieter films. But here, because it's so kind of like this low budget sort of Sam Raimi kind of feel to it, it feels very much like a horror film. I don't know if you guys get that vibe as well. Um, I do because well. Uh you know joel cohen started out like basically just editing horror films and and yeah they, they have that like re- he has that relationship with with sam raimi there's even that shot in the film um that's the you know the classic evil dead run up uh right you know a camera camera trick that that uh sam raimi's come to be known for it which they also use in raising arizona but like um yeah, I, I think that they probably, especially Joel, was like, you know, pretty used to that format and how to capture some of those moments. And I think maybe without them fully realizing it, it dipped into how they approached um, just tackling some of the scenes in this film. I really like I'm really a fan of like first films. And this one is just like how you feel like they're putting everything into it, like as much as they can do, like. And they were like really uh, knowing what their limitations were and how much they could push them, you know, like, like where it's like you want to put everything into it, but they, you know, like, obviously they can't do everything. But I mean, obviously they learned from Sam Raimi what he did on Evil Dead on both of them and put it into this one and like really just made it like a horror genre kind of picture, but not so obviously not the horror of the 80s that we've come to know and kind of where it's just like super slasher and bloody even though this is kind of bloody but it's not like overdone at all right some of the yeah, and definitely a lot of the sam or sorry the uh the dan hedaya uh scenes the the julian marty or the marty character um you know like the when francis mcdormand has the dream dream sequence and you know at the end of it he like leans down and like throws up all that black it's like okay that's them definitely mm-hmm. going for a horror thing more than they ever you know they never really did that again even throughout the rest of their career so yeah i'm with you i love first films too because you can see the the angst in them where they're trying all these different things and all these different influences and uh it's an exciting thing to watch you know and especially if it's competent you know, sometimes you watch first films and they don't feel very competent. But this is like th- these are these are two guys who hit the ground running. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's why I was like excited watching this again. It was just like, oh, yeah, you see like all like the still roughness around their neck, you know, like they're not like perfect like shots or anything like that. They're a little I don't know, like still working things out, but it just like but you can. Yeah, like you said, you can see them like just they just hit the ground running 
and even with the story is just like so competent in st- telling the story where on one of the special features they talked about how like they don't know what a three-act structure is. They're just like, oh, this happens, this happens. Oh, I guess we should we kind of end it now. <laughs> That's pretty <laughs> right. crazy because they're like – well, it, I mean, at, at that time, only because they're like some of the greatest American writers. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny too because how little – you know, I think what has always brought me um, such joy about the Coens is like they – how little they they take themselves seriously as much as it's clear they take themselves so seriously like they're very self-deprecating especially when discussing their storytelling like um i don't know if you if you both have have ever checked out that uh roger deacon's podcast um but he had joel cohen on and he had there was a really wonderful like side-splitting story he told about um them having a premiere maybe not a premiere but uh a some sort of you know dedication to the cohen's in texas i believe and one of the congress women or or someone someone in the council it was city council something like that um was uh, at the at the ceremony and approached joel and was like you know i'm really excited to see what you guys do next what do you what are you working on and (laughs) It was the the next movie they were making was uh, the man who wasn't there, and she goes, "What's it about?" and and he described <laughs> his one line to describe <laughs> that film was, um, "It's about a barber who wants to become a dry cleaner." <laughs> and and she and her response was, "I'm going to be honest. I'm trying really hard to be excited about that." <laughs> like it's that's not what that movie's about but if you look at it in like the big picture like i suppose that's what that movie's about but like disregarding all of the actual chain of events that happen in that film right yeah i mean and then even with this uh with blood simple also it sort of is i mean it is just about you know this cheating wife and this guy uh who's going to try to kill the wife and the and the, and the lover but I don't know. There, it that has more twists and turns to it than a usual uh, story like this would, where it kind of gives you everything right up front, and you think you sort of know everything that's going to happen, and then it just throws these other twists. And and also, again, they have that horror film aspect where you know Francis McDormand thinks that he's still alive, that Marty is still alive, and he's sort of like a ghost. And I just really, I just really love how they um, film. Uh, Dan Hedaya because he's just like so sweaty and gross I I, I remember I, I remember feeling that when I first watched it but this second watch for this I just remember looking at him especially when he's talking to that one girl at the bar um, trying to pick up on her it's just so disgusting he, he just feels so nasty I, I just felt like I had to wash my hands after looking oh at yeah him. yeah I'm with you it's it, like just the confidence to be like you know uh I forget what he tells he says like tell him you're doing something else like uh to break the date with uh the bartender it's like it's like and she's just like no and then i love the twist of like him asking what her last name is when she just told him that they've been friends for 10 years it's like it's like that's good writing it's just like right there was i think one of the early signs in the film of like good writing you know oh yeah yeah that the, the, they just they're always going to twist your expectations they're always going to take them different places even in such a you know a, a sort of a simple story like blood simple and it's also crazy that this is Frances McDormand's first uh, starring role uh, because, I don't know, she feels very natural. It feels like she's, it's, right. I guess it's also maybe the, the control that uh, the Coen brothers also just have over their actors that they've always just sort of had, that they're always able to get these these really just natural kind of great performances from them. Yes, ab- absolutely. I remember the first time I saw it, this the scene pretty early on 
um, with uh, with what's his face, uh, M. Emmett Walsh. Uh, yeah, yeah, the detective. When he when he says the line of like, you know, I could still crawl around without my head, like that whole line, um, is when I was like, okay, like I'm in for like a very good time because that interaction alone was uh was top tier you know yeah it's it like all that stuff stands out in like uh and really in like their top in their in their filmography there isn't i was gonna say discography like they're a band because it sort of feels like that right this is like their their early like uh diy <laughs> like kind of dirty record and barton thinks they're more like their experimental demo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 but it's like really good it's like of course they got signed <laughs> off of this having the conversation about you know ranking their movies is always really tough because uh, above uh, you know a lot of other directors i feel like their their midsection is always like uh you know it's all great like they they didn't i feel start making not great films until like the early 2000s you know that's when you started to get a few that weren't so hot like the intolerable cruelties and uh arguably the lady killers which i'm kind of a i'm kind of a lady killers apologist i don't know how you guys feel but um it's it's interesting that a, that directors can just kill it so quickly early on. The only early on movie of theirs that I admit I'm not a huge fan of is the Hudsucker Proxy. Um, I don't enjoy a lot of aspects of it, uh, and I don't come back to it that often. I'll watch it maybe like once every two years or something just to kind of decide if I still feel that way. How how do you two feel about that film? This is this is where the fight starts, Jeremy. Okay. I, I, <laughs> Hudsucker Proxy just one of those, it just like was always on HBO when I was a kid, yeah. And for some reason, I would always catch it and and seeing that as a kid, it was just like not it was like seeing something that I've never seen before, you know. Okay. Honestly, I was just a kid, but I hadn't seen much. But just like all the like stupid like you're you're wearing Hudsucker, yo blah blah blah, <laughs> like you know like all that like old timey talk and stuff like that and like later to realize it's kind of like a little bit of brazil how the shots are especially in the mail room and stuff like that mm-hmm. like i don't know i just always liked that film i, I, I think you're always a, fan had a soft of hulu. spot for it i guess you're a big I fan think of hulu that it hoops. starts <laughs> <laughs> the thing is i think it starts really strong i think it starts really strong but i think by like the third act it feels really it kind of feels exhausting to, and like it doesn't really end that exciting i don't know it, when it starts, I, I get really in the mood for it. I'm like, yeah, this is fun. It's like really animated. It's really playful. It's really slapsticky. Yeah. Um, but then I it, it feels like it just kind of gets lost a little bit. But my biggest issue with it, and this is the one I struggle with, uh, when I, you know, because I feel bad because I'm such a fan of her, is I can't hang with the Jennifer Jason Lee character. Like, <laughs> as as someone who's a big fan of the Coens, I can also admit their problems. And one of their problems is that they're really not they've never really been great at writing for women unless it's like for Francis McDormand. Um, and mm. the, the, the character that they write that they wrote for yeah. Jennifer Jason Lee is like, I can't hang with that accent, you know, like that, like, like it's, it's, <laughs> that's what it's, I like about it. <laughs> it's, it's so animated. Like it, it just pulls me out of the movie, you know, I don't know. I love that scene when they're at the bar and she's trying to like, um, you know, act helpless in front of Tim Robbins because she knows who she is, who he right. is. she knows who he is. And like the two guys at the bar are like narrating like all the stuff that she's doing. See, oh, but she's what makes that scene gonna... great 
is the is the guys narrating it that's that's yeah. the killer in that scene you know like that like that part's so charming it's like it's like he's not she's not she is <laughs> like that whole thing is so good um and i said look I'll put, I'll put my pulitzer on it right <laughs> whatever she said <laughs> yeah i mean like look even the worst even the worst cohen movie is still pretty good you know what i'm saying like it's uh it's it's just one of those things it's like um i don't know if you guys are fans of that band converge but it's like even the even a converge record that's like maybe not your favorite it's still a good record you know what i'm saying like there's just certain people or certain acts or certain artists certain people whatever that make that make art that like you know you kind of go into it expecting it to be held to a specific standard and like even if it doesn't hit that expectation it's still enjoyable you can still find things to enjoy about it you know yeah, no, that's a really actually good uh, comparison of Converge and the Coen brothers, which I didn't ever think of that. But that, that makes sense because it is that it is something that no matter what, I'm going to return to them, uh, regardless of to whether, you know, it's a, the older stuff or the newer stuff. I'm always going to find something in it and know that it's going to have something uh, to it, whether, you know, whether it's Burn After Reading, which I didn't like right at the beginning. But once I watched it again, I found so much more in it because I actually just know I know that there's more to it. Than, than that first impression that you get, especially with the Coen brothers, especially with, uh, you know, with Barton Fink, that what we're going to talk about a little later in terms of they, they're able to give you a lot of interpretations of things and you can come out of their films with, you know, a, a different idea of what it was about than someone else's, you know, I, not not so much Blood Simple, but I think uh, Blood Simple is just more on the entertaining aspect, which is like, again, it's just like their first demo. It's just that that fun, grungy, dirty stuff, you know? Right. That, that's a weird thing that I wanted to mention because they they talk uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen talk about like uh like story writing and like like there's nothing they always say there's nothing else but just the story you know there's no nothing to look into like like they're on one of the special features of blood symbol I think they said like oh story's not enough for some people so they just have to look into it to make it have a deeper meaning and stuff what what did you guys feel about that I mean I just that's kind of weird but I mean I mean it's easy to kind of look into their stuff deeper <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I, I always found that funny with them, too, that they're, again, that's like back to them being sort of that perfectly like self-deprecating sort of thing, like not giving, you know, like not just being like, no, we're not like they, they're pretending like they're not deep thinkers. But, you know, whereas like Ethan Cohen has is a philosophy major, you know what I'm saying? It's like whether they realize <laughs> yeah, they just or not, don't want to be bothered. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like one of my another one of my favorite things is like when asked about um inside lewin davis you know like the deep meanings behind that in the same interview i believe they were like oh we added the cat because we needed to have a plot <laughs> it's yeah. like you know like the, that's that's the only plot in the movie is him dealing with the cat you're like no that's not true there's more to this than that you know what i'm saying yeah like I, um, yeah i'm over here like, like the cat, stone right? yeah i'm over yeah, here stone being like oh that's that's his career it's fleeting from him it's running from him he's got to find you know i'm like thinking of all this stuff and it's just a cat <laughs> all right <laughs> exactly exactly i say i don't know if you've ever looked at um that the record cover that that movie's uh based off of uh, there's that singer dave ronk uh, it's like an yeah. old um folk singer uh but mm -hmm. he has yeah he has a record called like inside dave ronk and on the cover of that record there's a cat and uh like like next to him on the floor and it, and <laughs> And I remember watching an interview where they're like, yeah, someone pointed out that there was a cat on the cover. We didn't even realize it. Like, you would think that that would have been the thing that would have, you know, sparked them wanting to include this this plot line. But yeah. the fact that it didn't even register to them. I mean, also, like, 
uh, Joel has been open about how he's never read the Odyssey. Like they've never read the Odyssey, but they made O oh Brother Where Out Thou. It's interesting. You know, also they've never watched True Grit, the original version, because they didn't want to have it influence what they made. It's interesting. Did, have you seen the original True Grit? Uh, I have, yeah. And it does it is it similar or is it just kind of like the same story? Does it? Yeah, does I mean, really there, there, there are definite similarities for sure. You know, like the the over the overarching like story is is the same, but um, you know the co- the you you know you're watching a Coen brother movie yeah, when you're watching that because Coen of brothers. the screenplay. Yeah, like the screenplay, the jokes, the 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 subtleties in it you know like uh like like the the scene when um when she's selling the horse or buying the horse back or, or whatever like that that's a cohen scene you know you can't that's not going to be yeah. in anything else yeah I, I i love true grit i just love how stupid everybody is like how in the west like they're all just like like they just talk so proper and but they're all like idiots they don't know anything about anything you know like they just right they just have to like mask it like and i don't know that's so like cohen's too like everyone being an idiot <laughs> totally yeah absolutely um you know back to blood symbol though real quick is like yeah. i didn't realize until a recent rewatch about like i don't know why i never put together that um that barry sonnenfeld was their dp for those first couple movies like i think in my head i always just kind of assumed deacons was there pretty early on but i i come to realize like deacons didn't come on until a little bit later and yeah, it's like yeah, Barry Sonnenfeld. Yeah, like came on to do, you know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. And like the fact that, you know, Barry Sonnenfeld like basically stopped being a DP in 91 when he did The Adams Family, then all of a sudden went on to doing, you know, Get Shorty and the um, the Men in Black. The Men movies. in Black. Yeah, it's crazy. Like <laughs> Yeah, not until this watch I realized that too. I was like, "Oh, why is that name sound so familiar?" And then I looked his his filmography or whatever. I was like, "Oh, he directed all those movies, like, you know." Yeah, when you were like watching Black, the yeah. When you were watching the the feet the special features for it, did you catch that story about him throwing up? No, I didn't. What what tell it? Oh, so he apparently has a very weak stomach, right? So <laughs> in the film, um, when Francis McDormand uh kicks Marty in the you know in the nuts, he and he throws yeah. up. The audio of the throw up is Barry <laughs> Sonnenfeld actually throwing up because he was so grossed <laughs> out by it happening. <laughs> <laughs> that that his reaction was to immediately throw up and then they'd say later like when their conversation like apparently barry sonnenfeld threw up several times in the film he he threw up in the scene when uh the fly is on uh emmett walsh's face uh in the car he was just grossed out about this fly just hanging out on his face <laughs> so um yeah it was just that's, just hilarious yeah, and that's just that scene he... where he just throws up anyway from getting kicked in the nuts. I mean, that's, that's... yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's really funny. It's gross because of the way he's filming it too. So it's sort of his Go fault. Ahead, he's the way he makes it look. <laughs> it's kind of his fault why it yeah. looks so gross. Because <laughs> <laughs> it looks so good because of him. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. yeah, that, especially the fly and absolutely. everything. Absolutely. Yeah, but the, do do you own this, uh, Jeremy? I'm sorry. Do you own it on? I do. Yeah. Once I started, you once do. I okay. really started buying. Um, criterion films this was this was art potentially in like the first three or four criterion films that i ever owned it was probably like this uh like you know days to confused and maybe like royal tenenbaums or something like that like those are probably you know Mm -hmm. i feel like there's a lot of um i I feel like the initiation criterion versions are usually like 
you know, Wes Anderson movies and like uh, maybe like the game from David Fincher or something like that, you know, like those entry level yeah. great films. But um, but yeah, Blood Simple was was a very early on pick because I was like, you know, it's it's a Cohen film. And also, you know, it looks awesome. The art on it is awesome. All of that sort of stuff. Yeah, I was just going to ask, cause did you ever have a, an older copy of it on any kind of other? Yeah, I had a, there was a, the, the, I don't know, probably 10 years ago, um, there was like a Blu-ray set uh, that came out that had Blood Simple, Miller's Crossing, and, and Raising Arizona. Raising Arizona, yeah, that th- it was like a three-pack set or whatever. I bought that. Um, oh, just okay. Own, just yeah, because I... also because that was the only time, the only way at the time to get Miller's Crossing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I the Miller's Crossing copy that I have is from when Hollywood Video went under, and I just bought that DVD from them for like three dollars. Uh, yeah, it's <laughs> it's no good. But uh, yeah, so that's um, that's why I just asked because w- watching it on kind of an old DVD, um, seeing the like the transfer of it on this Criterion Blu-ray is just it just I don't know it just makes it pop like and, and again what I'm saying for Barry Sonnefeld it's just like man you you've made it you made it look so just like very like juke like a jukebox but like I said with like this sweaty flies on it it just sort of it just it's really like gross but really it just pops whereas like Barton Fink doesn't like you know it doesn't really pop as much in terms of color. Yeah, it's interesting. There, it, one of the special features on the Criterion channel, and it's also on the on the Criterion version, is is that conversation with Barry Sonnenfeld and um and the Coens, um and they're and they're basically what it's 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 like commentary basically. They're they're it's their commentary on it, and they're basically just <laughs> they're basically just talking shit on how bad they think the movie looks. It's yeah, it's really yeah. funny just watching them, the, listening to the three of them be very self deprecating. Just being like, well, that well, clearly we didn't know what a wide angle was. Oh, and here's a shot where you can see this person in the background. Oh, what are we doing with these blues? Oh, that's so bad. <laughs> and then they'd be like, oh, that's interesting that her side of the face is lit up uh, when clearly the lamp is on her left side. That's a weird choice there, Barry. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, it's oh, it's pretty funny. That's funny too because they like storyboard the shit out of this film, right? Like. Like they, every shot was like perfectly placed because they knew what they had to do and like how much film they had, you know. And that's funny that they're just going back and like making fun of their choices. Yeah, no, no doubt. It's, it's, uh, yeah, they even like the opening scene. I guess the opening scene was the last thing that they filmed for this movie, uh, with the two of them in the car. And they used a Fiat because in a Fiat, um, the two seats, the, the driver and the passenger seat are very close together. So they wanted to be able to have them both together. Um, and originally it was supposed to be during, uh, they were supposed to be driving through the fog and they realized how difficult that was going to be. And they didn't know how to do that yet. So they just had, um, they just had someone on the roof of the car with a hose to make it look like it was just raining really hard. <laughs> um, and apparently by like the end of that whole sequence, they've used three different kinds of cars uh to get like the opening <laughs> shot between um you know the shot of the the bug behind them uh you know all those sorts of things so it was interesting to hear all the technical aspects that went even into just that scene it, they also filmed it inside of a garage apparently so it's like indoors which is interesting to know too yeah that's funny that you mentioned the bug too how that they talk about how um that's what they felt M- emmett walsh's character was like just like a bug like and that makes sense. Like he's just like a, a guy on the wall, like, you know, kind of floating around and like 
just going in and out of these like out of their lives you know like just kind of almost disrupting it you know right oh it's, that's interesting i didn't that's hear funny. that part that's that's an interesting take on it uh, you know also you know some worth discussing is we see these little subtleties that appear in their movies later right like in the big lebowski uh the the private you know the <laughs> the brother yeah Seamus. they mentioned him having a bug too <laughs> yeah it's like the same yeah. shot of like being followed yeah. by this bug um <laughs> so we see that and then also the scene when um you know he's dragging uh dragging marty out of the car on the side of the highway before he buries him uh that's from fargo you know when when the oncoming oh, cars uh coming and then they have to pull him out to the side you know it's like we see them mm-hmm. repeat that same level of suspense in a movie you know 13 years later or yeah they just perfected it yeah 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 <laughs> Another scene is when they're burying Marty. I love that. I love the look of how like kind of almost cartoony it looks when how the the grave is like breathing, you know, like in like, oh, yeah, you're like at some like Halloween horror nights or something, you know, because it would never <laughs> breathe that hard. But it looks so awesome, you know? Yeah, no, most, most definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we got to talk about um, the whole, so the, the scene that has always stuck with me and I actually have a tattoo uh, of it. Uh, on the back of my leg, I, my my right leg is just Cohen brother tattoos. Um, is is the scene towards the end with uh when Emmett Walsh sticks his hand through the the windowsill and gets you know that's like the idea of that happening is so upsetting when you think because you can't help but watch that scene and think about how you would handle it. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. the idea of your hand being yeah. stuck. And you can't see your hand, but you know a knife is through it, and you can't at all adjust your arm to like free yourself. Oh, it's and the fact that like his the window has broken over his cheek as he's trying to let himself loose, and like so he's potentially cutting his cheek on the glass. Like everything in that scene is so perfectly laid out to where you're like, how would you handle this? And obviously he shoots through the wall and starts punching through it. Um, which you, that would have to take such an enormous amount of adrenaline to even accomplish. Um, I, I'm curious to hear what you two thought of that scene when you first saw it. Well, we, I, it's like you said, it really like hurts yeah, when I, you're watching I it. I thought it, that it was really, like insane. Yeah, you really like feel like that. Like you said, you're sort of like, oh man, what would I do? Whereas to me, I'm just like, oh, I just I would just give up. I put my head down and hope that somebody would come and help me because that just seemed like too much pain to even. <laughs> try to get out of yeah. and because he you know to try to like punch a wall it's like I'm, my, my hand already hurts i'm not trying to hurt this other one so yeah but but yeah it's it's a great scene especially the way it's filmed especially it, it has that like it's actually that, that would... diy feel it's this diy feel it feels so like um like gross and just it doesn't feel like special effects or anything it just feels like they really just stuck something in this guy's hand and he's just stuck there oh. i like your scenario jordan where you just give up and <laughs> just like, lay there i think i think they would do that in another film but yeah, I didn't even think about the adrenaline part, like, because when I saw it, I was like, "How is he punching through this wall? That fucking must hurt." Like, but maybe not not as much as a a knife through your hand, you know? Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah like your survival instinct would have to just kick in and be yeah, like, "I yeah. I need." Oh, yeah, it's you know. Also, who knows how shittily that that apartment was made? Maybe in your hopes that you know it was wasn't yeah. the strongest <laughs> drywall, but uh. Yeah. 
but man yeah that scene that scene has always stuck with me so um when deciding what i wanted to get as like a blood simple tattoo i have like a tattoo of like a hand being like stuck into the window with a with a knife coming out of it it's just it's such a gnarly scene you know what? i actually yes. just realized i actually just realized there's also another there's another callback uh in that last shot or one of the last shots with with emmett walsh looking up um and he's looking at the pipes am i wrong or is there some they kind of do that in barton fink as well when he's unconscious after being um after john goodman's taking care of the body is there a, is there a shot i know they do the pipe the the shot of the camera going down the pipes um but i wonder if they do an under if they do an under the sink shot you know what you're right i think they do do that interesting wow i, I just that just hit me right now yeah that's pretty crazy that you bring that up because i would have never really noticed that that they they copy kind of their own shots from their older films Man, these Coen brothers really know what they're doing huh wow yeah these guys they're just copying <laughs> themselves, huh? Exactly. Well, I mean, it's funny. It's like they're they're you you almost feel like they have really started to, in a way, sometimes kind of built their own cinematic universe. I mean, obviously with Barton Fink and Hail Caesar, that's its own universe. They they there's some crossover with the people they mention in that, and it's both taking place at Capitol Pictures, and that's like such a thrill oh, to watch nice. both of those kind of. That's like a fun double feature, uh, watching those back to back. Well, that's actually a pretty good uh, segue into your pick, Barton Fink, which is what you brought here to the collection, is what you brought to the chopping block. And uh, I just want to kind of ask you your first experience with watching it. I know when I first saw the film, I, you know, I, I, I enjoyed it. I didn't hate it or anything, but it was just sort of a, a competent Coen Brothers film. It wasn't until I saw it later that I really noticed the the, the change in tones, the, how it's a thriller, how it's kind of a horror film, even though it's like a dark comedy and all these different things. And I was just kind of wondering what your first experience was with Barton Fink and, you know, what, what you thought about that. If you, if you feel that kind of that shift and that that thriller aspect in it. um, Yeah, I, I mean, I remember all I remember seeing it the first time and noticing the shift. You know, I, I think the most um, eye opening part of the first time you see it is you feel that shift happen when it goes from this, you know, kind of neurotic, um, self-engrandizing, um, takes himself too seriously, kind of, you know, uh, struggling artist type who uh, all of a sudden gets put into a, <laughs> into a very scary troubling situation um and when he that's i mean the moment after he slaps the mosquito you're watching a different movie it, it you the change is so so real and you're, then you're just like i don't know where this movie's going anymore like I, I genuinely can't tell and then it becomes sort of a dark fantasy um you know you you start questioning the reality of of his neighbor the john goodman character um charlie meadows like it, it just becomes such a uh like a, a seat gripper you're like I, I don't know what's gonna happen now you know it goes it goes from kind of like a dark comedy to a thriller yeah now that you're talking how you're talking about it it reminds me of mulholland drive where it does that turn you know when she wakes up from whatever you know her dream that she's dreaming right. the whole like the first half of the movie but yeah like this one yeah it it was so crazy like this one, uh, Barton Fink, I've always kind of wary. I was always wary to watch, like for some reason, because I never thought I liked it. I've seen it. I saw it once before, and I don't know. I didn't really get anything from it. But watching it again, I was just like, 
I was really into it. It's like I feel like now watching it again, it's one of those movies where I would just put on all the time, you know, just to have it on as background or just to watch like, you know, intensely. Oh, for sure. I, I mean, when when I have, you know, gun to my head, if I'm asked to list my top, you know, five favorite Coen brother movies, um, Barton Fink sometimes jockeys for my favorite sometimes, you know, like my top three are, are Lebowski, No Country and Barton Fink with Miller's Crossing right there on the cusp. Like that's another very underrated movie that I, I go to bat for really really hard but um i mean barton fink to me is just a it's just a perfect film like it it's it uh it takes itself um very seriously but you know like you could tell that there's such a vision behind it with every single aspect of every single shot i mean like they perfectly captured discomfort um with with the los angeles summers with i mean the scenes of the wallpaper peeling like you feel hot when you watch this movie like you feel yourself start to kind of sweat under your armpits you're like oh it's it's gross you know like yeah yeah the wallpaper just like seeping out on you like and touching it that's like yeah that just looks so disgusting and that like he's in this seedy hotel like i don't know i don't know what he expects he expects to see in this like hotel that he picked you know because he wants to be with the common man that's like the whole thing too about being with the common man but he's always like ignoring the common man or not really like listening to anyone but his own uh neurotic thoughts and stuff like that you know like so he's like missing everything he's like that's right in front of him exactly i mean he says he's for the common man and then as you know his friend charlie meadows who's the definition of your common man tries to tell him a story he just cuts him off and just keeps blathering about how you know, he's such a great writer or not such a great writer, but like how, we, you know, he's writing for the people. He's doing all of this. But like yeah. he doesn't actually listen to anybody but himself. Like it's that perfect yeah. example of like what a shitty, you know, up his own ass um, artist type yeah, is. takes himself too, silly, too seriously type. Yeah, definitely. And in, in the beginning when he's watching his play and the, the guy says like fish, he yells fish in front of him. Mm hmm. Do you see like John Turturro's face? Like, does he give like kind of like he's like he's like annoyed by that? Yeah, yeah, it's tough. It's like I don't know if it's that he's annoyed or if he's uh, stressed out because it's about to, you know, like I think that's yeah opening night. So maybe he knows that the play is ending or something like that. But mm-hmm. um, I don't. Know. I took it as like he was annoyed when that guy said that, but it was like it was like you wrote that part. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like you're annoyed like uh, yeah i guess you could be annoyed with your own work but like it was just funny to see like to see that like going back you know and like how he is this like a, not a likable character just like kind of like oh you have no sympathy for him honestly you know yeah 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 and it's funny it's like the the michael the michael lerner character the the jack lipnick the the owner of capital records I mean, in the same way, he's he's very similar to Barton, where like you know, at the end of the film, he's he's wearing a military getup, but he's not a he's not an <laughs> officer, you know. Yeah. It's like he's saying he's 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 this, but he's actually not, you know. Um, yeah. Which which I find to be really funny, and you know the the W. P. Mayhew Mayhew character, the writer that he's a that he's a big fan of, that's a raging alcoholic, you know, he comes to learn that his wife is is the one who's writing his books or taking you know large portions it's like nobody is what they actually think they are or 
but they present themselves. And that's that's such an interesting aspect when you watch this movie. You know, I think and then obviously we got Charlie Meadows who's presenting himself as this lovable, you know, salesperson yeah, when it's salesman, yeah. <laughs> yeah, when at the heart he's a serial killer. Yeah. But that that's funny too, because like when you first when we first meet uh John Goodman's character, Charlie Meadows, like what does he see? He says like He's like, oh, like when he tell when uh, Barton tells him he's a writer, he's like, oh, you're in that racket. Like everything is just like a, a scheme to him, you know, and everything is just like a scheme almost, you know, like and how you were saying, like how the the writer character, the dad from Frasier isn't really writing his stuff anymore. It's the secretary, his like sort of muse or whatever. Yeah. Like no one is really like it's just it is all just like a racket, you know, no one like and especially the Michael Lerner character, you know, he's just like he said he didn't he doesn't know any of the, the technical mumbo jumbo, but he's just like a big talker, kind of a BSer, you know. Yeah, I think a part of the film, too, that's really fun to kind of like, you know, think on is is this idea, which, you know, you talk to the Coens and I'm sure they would dismiss it. But like the idea that the hotel is hell, you know, like. You get the Steve Buscemi, the Ch- the Chet character, who in the scene opening comes up from the floor. So it's like, is he coming from some sort of pit of hell? You know, is he like some sort of demon type? I mean, one of my favorite, one of my favorite little quip, <laughs> quick lines of dialogue is when he's in the elevator, and he says, and he asks the elevator guy, he's like, "You read the Bible?" He goes, "Bible?" It's like, "Yeah, you ever read it?" It's like, "Uh," he's like, "No." I mean, anyway, I've heard about it. You know, it's like that, that little, that little back and forth. It's like, you know, it's another signature. It's like, are we, is this hell, you know? Yeah. That was funny too. He's like, yeah, I think so. He's like, yeah, I heard of it. Anyway, I've heard about it. Yeah. It's great. It's great. (laughs) Well, one of the reasons I think that, you know, Los Angeles and the hotel is supposed to be a representation of hell is because at the end when everything's burning up and is on fire and John Goodman was in his room and he's sort of letting Barton Fink know like, hey, like he he sort of represents the devil in my eyes because he's just like, hey, you don't come to hell and tell the devil to be quiet. You know, you you just you're just a tourist here. People live here like this is hell. Like you just came here to do this. And that's why I feel like that scene is really effective because you know the whole time you're kind of wondering what's going on and then once john goodman kind of lays that out for him you're just like oh yeah he is in hell like that's that's what that is that's obviously hell definitely yeah and that scene is so effective you know it's like i live here you know it's <laughs> whew. yeah it, it, that movie just it it's so it's so captivating and it does everything that i want from a film you know like it surprises you it makes you laugh it makes you laugh and you're wondering if you should be laughing, you know, like, like, wait, were they really just making that joke? I guess they were. I get, yeah. You know, like it's got, um, it's got, it seems like it has deeper meaning, whether the cones are going to admit to it or not. Um, and then also just, uh, being from this town, um, I'm from Burbank specifically. I was born and raised there. Like, you know, you, you know, the capital pictures is, is Warner brothers, you know, and it's, it's just right there down the street. So like, there's that sort of significance as well. And, you know, bringing back to hail Caesar, like, you know, in hail Caesar, they get into a lot of uh, the Burbank specific um, things were happening at that time, which with Lockheed and, and um, Lockheed being such a, a big part of that town, like the weapons manufacturing company that started to, um, you know, uh, infiltrate sort of the the entertainment industry, and and then they became sort of the two big conglomerates in this small town. Um, 
yeah, it's just like it's all super interesting. It's it's uh it's a cool little snapshot of an era that they capture so well between both those movies. Yeah, hell yeah. And let, let's just sort of kind of get into why you know you brought Barton Fink to the collection, why you think it should get a release from them. I myself believe that you know, it's sort of considered maybe a, a lesser Coen Brothers film, where I believe that it is top-tier Coen Brothers film. It's not as well-known as something as, like, Fargo or Raising Arizona. But I think that, you know, with more people talking about it, it getting more of a release, you know, because they have so many different types of releases that I think that some stuff gets swept under the rug. But Barton Fink, I think, it, you know, deserves to be talked about. I don't know what how you feel about that. I don't know what, you know, what you what you have to say about that. Yeah, and for a few reasons, I think that what you just said for sure, and also the fact that it's never really had a proper uh, like Blu-ray release, like the version that I have of it is like an import. Um, and then on top of that is I feel like it never was categorized in the right place. I'll never forget way before I saw it. I remember the cover specifically always being in the comedy section at Blockbuster or, you know, wherever the video rental store was, it was always in the comedy section, which, yes, it's funny, but I don't think I would call it a comedy. I don't know what I would call it. I guess it's like a, it's certainly a dark comedy, but I mean, it's kind of a drama, you know, it's, I wouldn't call it a horror film. I'd be, I'd be, I, I, I guess I would call it a horror film as much as I would call it a comedy. You know what I'm saying? Like there's, 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 aspects of it for sure but i you know where do you where where do you put this film you know so i think that could have um that could have had some sort of thing to 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 not get it in front of as many people as it should because if you went to blockbuster on a friday night and you rent this movie thinking it's a comedy because you see john goodman on the cover and you're a fan of roseanne you're probably gonna have a bad time (laughs) you know yeah I, i couldn't imagine what someone would think back then like just picking it up you know, like, oh, this is John Goodman's in it. Great. He's he's hilarious on Roseanne. Yeah, I love Dan. Dan's great. Yeah. Let's see. Let's see what Dan's got. <laughs> but I don't know. I would honestly, I'd, it'd probably be under staff picks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, like, that hair. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, John Turturro at the time, I don't I don't know. Uh, I'd have to look at his at his filmography, but like, I don't know what else he was really doing around that time other than i know he had been in some spike lee movies um oh but, yeah yeah but i don't know if he had um i have to look it up actually right now i don't know if around that time if he was ever like a you know like the star of any bigger films around that time that that's um, true that is weird that he's the star of this film you know because yeah i don't think he was you know really like a name to be uh recognized at that time especially yeah like yeah, I mean, like even 90. yeah, he he was certainly great in Miller's Crossing, but he's not the star. He has a very he has a very pivotal moment that we all you know that kind of becomes the the talking point. I think of that of that movie that stands out to people. But like, you know, uh, we all saw him and do the right thing, which was you know a few years before um, jumping in and out of these out of these movies but like never as a star you know as a star like he's in the color of money a scorsese movie he was in um several spike lee movies around that time but it seemed like he was kind of jumping back and forth between um spike lee and uh and coen brothers movies which is (laughs) what a flex that is but yeah you know so it was it's cool to it was cool to see uh to see someone you know lesser known like that all of a sudden get to be the the front runner 
uh, on a movie like this. But, you know, I think John Goodman probably carried the film in terms of uh, rental and, and things like that. But um, I could also imagine just the movie, you know, like the, the production companies having a hard time or um, just the, the overall movie companies having a hard time deciding how to market this thing, you know? And there's also that, what is it? I forget which one is which. One of you two might know. Um, I forget if it was, they were having a hard time writing Miller's Crossing. So they ended up writing Barton Fink. I think that's what happened. Do you know yeah, about that? Yeah, they were that? taking a break from writing. Yeah. yeah, they were taking a break from writing Miller's Crossing because they're having a tough time. Like, And they don't want to say writer's block, but then they wrote this in three weeks. Right. And then which there is... was an article that I read too. Well, that's one of the reasons why I think that yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Well, I was just trying to say that one of the reasons why I think it belongs in the collection is because, you know, we need a Coen Brothers film that they wrote <laughs> over a weekend. You know what I mean? Come on. Let's get in there. Yeah. And also, it's a movie that deals with writer's block. It's like, what, you're kidding me? It's like you were having writer's block, so you wrote a film about writer's block. <laughs> like, <laughs> get out of here. Yeah, that was that was actually something I wanted to ask you, Jeremy, because they talk about, like, you know, how, well, uh, uh, John Turturro is having writer's block, and they're like, oh, you don't have to put your soul in it. It's just a re- wrestling picture, you know, stuff like that. And, I mean, do you ever get that when you have to write something, or do you ever have that pressure on you to write something, like when, when you're writing an album, song, or whatever? Definitely, yeah, mo- most definitely. There's there's times I convince myself that something doesn't have to be as serious as, I, as I'm making it, but then, I, you know, I still hold myself to some level of, like, no, I can't just shine this on. Like it needs to be something real. Like I have a my side project band is called Hesitation Wounds, which is like where I normally, you know, vent about things I don't do in Touche. Like Touche's never felt like the right outlet to write political. It just would seem strange, you know, like not not like it would yeah. be strange like we're like I'd be afraid to use our bigger platform to talk about politics. Like I don't mean it like that. I mean it like you know, I, I we have an entire mm. record about when my mom passed away. Like, if in the middle of that record there was a song about yeah. fucking Bush, you'd be like, "What? Like, that doesn't make <laughs> sense. Like, why would <laughs> that was really jarring?" Um, <laughs> not to say that record came out when George Bush was in office, but you get you get what I'm saying. Um, so like, yeah, yeah it's it's it's, it's never felt like the right <laughs> outlet. Whereas like hesitation wounds is like, oh, I could just sort of you know, write about all these things that I'm just, you know, surface level pissed about, you know, like easy topics that like, we're Mm. all feeling we're all mad about or whatever. So then I sit down and I'm like, okay, these songs are just like fast, heavy songs, like they have mosh parts stuff, you know, I get to do I get to play with all this stuff that I don't get to play with in touche, like, this should be kind of easier to write for. But then I find myself having almost arguably a harder time writing for that because, um, you know, it's like it's it's like putting on a different pair of pants that I'm that I'm like not, you know, like they don't fit they don't sit as as well. So I'm like, okay, I need to get used to this mm-hmm. pair of pants, you know. Um, so yeah, it's uh, I, I can certainly relate to that aspect of it where it's like it's like he wants to take this picture way more seriously than what everyone is telling him. I was just like, yo, it's a it's a it's a it's a B picture, you know, you get a, yeah. you get a dame or a, or like yeah. a simpleton or whatever, or, you know, whatever. And it's, it, there's, there's a bad guy and that's it. That's all. That's your movie. It's like, well, no, it needs to have yeah. heart. It needs to have feeling. Yeah. To him, it does like, and like he thinks no one cares about it, but they ultimately kind of end up saying they do care about the film, you know? Oh, right. Yeah. Which is I mean, it, and there's something so, 
you know, it almost kind of feels it feels similar. It, you get I I don't know if you how you two feel about this, but it gives me sort of the same feeling I got the first time I saw Inside Lewin Davis, um, the heartbreaking scene when he, you know, does the audition and the response is, oh, yeah. there's I don't see a lot of money here. You know, it's like he just yeah. bared his soul for this guy and he just told him no. And now Barton Fink just completely bared his soul, wrote this thing that he says he's the most proud of that he's ever written. And then his response is, you know, now you're basically under contract. We own you. Uh, I have 50 other writers yeah, who can give you that Barton are, Fink yeah. feeling, you know, <laughs> like, damn. I don't want, I don't want to see. Yeah. And they keep on bugging him. It's like, I want that Barton Fink, uh, Barton F- uh, feeling or whatever. They keep telling him that you're the only guy who has it. But then right after it's like, oh, this this picture's too fruity. It's too whatever yep. he keeps saying about his writing. <laughs> yeah. But that was funny too when you were talking about uh, how writing for a touche and then for hes- hesitation wounds is like uh, putting on like you know different like a different pair of pants like because he's trying to make the wrestling picture his fishmonger like people like um uh like you know like writing the same thing like but he has to write something different you know he's trying to put himself in that same like space but it's something totally different like it's a wrestling picture it's something else that's why he adds like the fishmonger thing into like the like the script line you know when Mm -hmm. he's writing it when he's first starting to write it right like he's trying to fit himself in like a square peg sort of you know and he's not it's not that yet right yeah no totally true and and it might honestly be a big reason why i love this movie so much is because i think in a lot of things that any of us relate to or call favorite movies or things like that like you know you might see a little bit of yourself and in what you're watching um you know unless you're watching a really fucked up horror movie or something then we might there might be cause for concern but uh (laughs) but in something like this you know if you could see yourself on the screen that's always kind of exciting well, just to go back to, you know, the scene that you brought up from Inside Lewin Davis, um, that's what it feels like putting out a podcast episode. Uh, you know, anytime you put it out, someone's just like, I don't see any money in this. And um, yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, what so <laughs> what we like to do here is we like to talk about uh, physical media. You got the wrong pants on. <laughs> we like to talk about <laughs> physical media and keeping that alive. And one thing is that, you know, a lot of people think that shit's just going to be on Netflix and everything forever. And, and that's just not the case. You know, that's why we like to talk about and like bring movies and talk about how we want them to be released on physical media. Because, you know, we're not always going to be able to have those movies just streaming, you know, especially, you know, th- those popular movies that people think they could just have like Goodfellas or whatever. You know, they, they that's just not going to happen forever. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I have. I'm in that situation where like I have a case, you know, like I have like a uh, this case that I've had all forever that is like pretty much at capacity right now and I need to always do like okay, like what can I now part with? Because there's going to be movies that are kind of always going to be on streaming and then I have to decide like is this just like a popcorn movie that I can kind of probably watch anytime or is it a movie that like I respect in my deepest heart of hearts and like need to own. You know, there's like there's always movies that are need to owns, whether they're going to be on streaming services or not, you know, like a movie, like there will be blood is like a, you need to own that. You know what I'm saying? Or like fucking, uh, yeah. Like a days to confused, you know, or an evil dead Two or, or something like that. But, um, like, do I need, what's a good example? Like a, a movie that I had on Blu-ray forever that I pulled out. I was like, I don't need this. It was like, I own blow. 
the Johnny Depp movie. It's like, oh yeah, just you can get rid of that. Yeah, I don't. It's fine. You know, I think I bought it probably for like you know six bucks used somewhere. I was like, oh yeah, this movie's good. Like it's kind of got like a like a like a fun caper sort of aspect to it. I love crime movies. I love you know uh, as a straight edge guy, give me any borderline Scarface movie I could watch just so I could pretend to be cool. Um, but. But yeah, like that's that's like a movie. It's like I'm not gonna need to. I don't need to own Blow. You know, I can now make room for, um, you know, the fucking Criterion version of House or something. You know. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, you don't need Blow on DVD, and you don't need Blow yeah, like, like as cocaine. You don't need it at all. Just stay away from it. Stay away from it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but something like Blow, it really is a great example of that idea of that. You know, when you're when you're starting to con- kind of collect. Uh, physical media you want a solid release of that whereas blow you know you're going to be able to see that on tnt forever but you want something from criterion like barton fink like these smaller films that you know they're they're giving you more to it they're giving you you know something that you want to display on your shelf you know what i mean yeah and i think what criterion does really well is it does kind of give a platform to the smaller lesser known films that are for the cinephiles that want to own these things and have all the cool extras and things like that. You know, like the fact that they have, you know, a criterion release of insomnia from Chris Nolan. It's like, it's not a great movie, but it's an early film and it's like cool to have that little time capsule for those people that want to own it. You know, I'm going to say this first, and this is probably going to discredit everything I've ever said or this podcast. But did Michael Lerner remind you of DJ Khaled? <laughs> I mean, like I could not like in that first I, scene when he's like just talking, blowing shit up his ass. Like it just reminded me of like, like that persona that he has, you know, like it was just so I don't that just a stupid okay. thought that came to my head. Sorry. OK, sure. Yeah. Why not? Uh, <laughs> Also, you know, someone somebody didn't mention real quick. I've never watched the show Monk, but I have to assume the Tony uh, Shalob or Shalob. Uh, I don't know how to say his last name properly. Uh, the you ever watch Wings. Uh, Monk. Is it was he? Is he in yeah, Wings? No, but as well? I never saw Wings. Oh, I never really watched. He was in it, Wings. No. Sorry. Oh, is he? So is because yeah. I was gonna say like is his Sorry, character Monk. is his character in this the same character that he does in Monk? Because it's because it's kind of the same character he does in um the man who wasn't there like the smooth talk or like the fast talking uh you know no nonsense kind of uh, uh bullshit or you know bullshit artist kind of guy like uh, i i feel like this could have been um you know like a career starter for him doing this kind of a role yeah he uh well in monkey plays like a different character for sure yeah it isn't okay he's almost like um and neurotic you know like he has that what's that ocd yeah a detective that has ocd it's like but you know it's not like how he is in barton fink at all actually at all like you know where he's like well then hey really confident like willing yeah well then hey i don't know shit i just assumed i just know it's about him being a private (laughs) detective and i was like well he seems very on his shit in this movie so i yeah i wondered if this was like a a big uh standout performance from him early on in his career that like maybe got him a lot more attention because it doesn't seem like he'd had a lot of movies before this like he i mean he did but i don't i'm unfamiliar with all of them there's a lot of like tv movies tv series stuff this is i think his first feature and he just like 
kills it. Yeah, there's that one movie. I haven't seen it, but it came out like in the mid '90s. With it's with like John Turturro, where it's like they're like in a kitchen. I forget. It's like the big night or something like that. I think yeah, that that's was 90... like a big movie for him. Like at yeah, the that was '96. This is '91. You know, so it's like uh, yeah, yeah. It just, you know, I I feel like I mean, just get to the Criterion conversation. Like, I I feel like a big thing that works really well with with Criterion is you know these films that jet start like jumpstart people's careers. You know, where you're like, oh, shit, this is where this person first really yeah. shined. You know, we get Francis McDormand doing it with Barton Fink. I mean, sorry, with a Blood Simple. Obviously, it's the Coen's first movie. And now with Barton Fink, it's like they're a realized, they're realized um, uh, creators, directors, producers. Um, and they're still starting people's careers. They're, you know, they're definitely, they put John Turturro as the lead in this. They get um, and a young Steve Buscemi who's still, you know, he's around, but he's not big yet but he has a little part in this yeah um you get john goodman you know firing on all cylinders (laughs) um yeah it's got you know it's that's so weird they've been it's interesting they've been like making john goodman like trying to happen and i don't know why he hasn't just like completely just blown up and is in every movie almost that doesn't make any sense to me like you know why john goodman just isn't like isn't just in Coen Brothers films. Like he should be like always starring in something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and like as far as I know, he's never really won any awards. And I don't. I'm gonna triple check that. But like, um, as far as I know, like yeah, he's not a guy who's who's ever been. Um, let me look here. What is that? Did I just see something about it? Yeah, he's like like definitely he's like super recognizable, but he's not always like he's not just starring in stuff. Well, I mean. I guess kind yeah, of in the early nineties he was, but it didn't happen. Because... Um, but yeah, it's like he was he's... in Babe or like. Yeah, and you have you look and you have like King Ralph. <laughs> he has he has like a career that I think anyone would really thrive to want to have, which is, um, he's never had the pressure of being an Oscar winner as much as we all can agree he should have an Oscar for something. Just give him one. Um, but but he's someone that when he yeah. appears on screen. <laughs> you're excited you know like um my girl and i just watched we've been watching the west wing because we never watched it back in the day and he's randomly in a couple episodes and when he came walking on the screen like (laughs) oh shit we got john goodman for a couple episodes like he's just one of those guys uh so Mm -hmm. when you see him all of a sudden in a film it's it's exciting i mean again and he and the coens use him so well i mean aside from the big lebowski where that's one of the best characters they've ever written um, I mean, when he appears in uh, in Inside Lewin Davis, like that's such an incredible character. Yeah. Uh, some of the most memorable lines uh, ever in that film or in that entire film are from his character. Um, and oh, brother, where art thou? Uh, as as the 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 salesman that ends up beating them up. Like there's whenever he just shows up in any of these films, you know, you're gonna have a good time for the for those few minutes. Yeah, you can't deny John Goodman, especially too in Raising Arizona, where uh, he meets they meet him in jail with <laughs> yeah. the other guy. Like those are just like fun characters. Like, yes, yeah, very lovable, fun characters, no doubt. Yeah, no doubt. Um, but yeah, I would be so thrilled if they if they did a Criterion version of uh, of this, and I would also argue uh, for them to do Miller's Crossing. That would be my other my other argument. Hell yeah. Well, I think it belongs in the collection. Uh, Mondo, are you smart enough to let it in? 
But yes, of course I would let Barton Fink in the Criterion Collection. I mean, it'd be stupid not to. <laughs> <laughs> then we're all agreed. Yeah. Just get just get DJ Khaled to do voiceover for Michael Lerner. Yeah, he could be in the reboot. He can be in the reboot yeah. of, the, of Barton Fink, the least watched, the least wanted reboot of all time of Barton Fink. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, I mean, I would, I'll come back on anytime. I can talk movies anytime with you guys. Hell yeah. Thanks thanks for being our guest today, Jeremy. Uh, and where can we find you online if you want to be followed? If not? Yeah, most of my shit is Jeremy X Bolm, whether it's Twitter or instagram and you can follow the first ever podcast uh on instagram uh under that name um or the first ever pod on twitter uh, i have episodes going up every wednesday and uh and yeah that's that's it i'm, I'm coming yeah, up on episode i'm excited 40. for that julian baker interview that you said you did yesterday yeah that's that one was really fun um this week's guest uh, i don't know when this is coming out but uh, this week's guest is an actual, he's a, a TV director. His name is Eric Appel. Uh, he's a writer and director. Uh, started out writing on the Andy Milanakis show because that was his roommate. Um, and then uh, went on to directing episodes of The Office, Silicon Valley, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, uh, The New Girl, um, all sorts of stuff. So it's uh, its a really cool conversation. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah, I definitely listened to that episode for sure. Hell yeah. Cool. Well, I appreciate uh, both your time and thanks for having me on. All right. And thank you guys for listening to the Criterion Cult Film Podcast. Jordan, where can we find you? Hell yeah. You can follow me on Instagram at Fonda, And please also follow the pod at Criterion Cult Pod on Instagram and also on Twitter at Criterion Cult. Thank you guys so much. Also listen to us on Spotify and rate us on iTunes as well. And thanks again, Jeremy, for being our guest today. No problem. Hell yeah. Thank you so much, Jeremy. We appreciate it. 